Would you grab your Bibles and turn to Malachi chapter 3? All right, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to put 17 with 3, 1 through 5, because this is, this is God's answer, 3, 1 through 5, to what they asked and what they said last week. So Malachi 2, 17, and then we'll get into chapter 3, verse 1. So you have wearied the Lord with your words, but you say, how have we wearied him? By saying, everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord, and he delights in them. Or by asking, where is the God of justice? So here's how God responds to the question. Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, there's that word again twice. In verse 1, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver. And he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver. And they will bring offerings and righteousness to the Lord. And then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord as in the days of old and as in former years. And then I will draw near to you for judgment. I will be a swift witness against the sorcerers, against the adulterers, and against those who swear falsely, against those who oppress the hired worker in his wages, the widow and the fatherless, and against those who thrust aside the sojourner and do not fear me says the Lord of hosts. So Judah has been back for a hundred years now. After the exile, the temple has been rebuilt. Worship is happening again. Nehemiah had come back. He had helped rebuild the walls around the city. Things were functioning and moving forward. And yet now, a hundred years into this, Judah had fallen back and slidden back into their old ways. They were much like they were why God sent them away in the first place to teach them and to discipline them. And now they're at a place where they're like, it's not really worth it to follow him. Haggai and Zechariah and Ezekiel and other prophets had promised that when we got back and we settled the land, that God would bring his blessing upon us again. He would restore us as a nation. We would thrive again. And that is not happening. They even looked at, we're still oppressed by a foreign king. We have no one on the throne in Jerusalem. Our crops aren't growing. The locusts have come and that had come. Some of the prophets wrote about that. And so they look around and they're like, it's not really worth it. And so, so as they look around and they see that things in the land are not going well, then they look outside of the land and they see these people who don't worship Yahweh, have no interest in Yahweh, who just want to oppress the Jewish people, and that has been their history. And when they looked at them, they thought, gosh, they seem to have it better than we do as God's people. And so they're kind of checking out again. They're bringing worthless sacrifices. They're bringing, uh, instead of bringing pure lambs, they're bringing a lamb that's got mange, it's got a patch on its eye, it's got a half a foot, and they're bringing that saying, here you go, priests. I want to offer, this is my offering to the Lord. 
And so all through this, we have seen that God has said, your heart is far from me, and so I'm asking you, will you bring your heart back close? Will this be the case for you? And so last week, as they looked around at the other nations, they said, God, where is the justice that you seem to be so concerned about? Because when we look at the other nations, you're not bringing justice upon them. And they even charged God with two things. One, God, you seem to now think that evildoers are good. And not only do you think that they are good, so therefore, God, you have changed what you've said and what you have kind of always said that there was who you are and what you were concerned about. So not only do you see them as good, but then they said this to God. God, you, you actually delight in them. You like the fact that they sin and live in a way that is against you and against your purposes. So obviously, that is not the case at all, but that's the condition on which they are. And so as you and I walk through this life, there are many charges that are leveled at God. Yeah, we know for sure from the outside culture that doesn't know God what they have to say about Him. But here in the text, and here that we need to really talk about in the room this morning, It's what happens when God's people say this about God. That's a much more serious issue. When those who know the word and they know who God is and they know the goodness of God now kind of look at him and say, God, the God who doesn't change, you have changed. And while you say that you're against evil, it sure looks like you are for evil. So this morning in the text, when we begin to walk through one through five, We're going to see kind of a dual fulfillment here. We're going to see um, Malachi speaking about something that's going to to come soon, soon in regard to the next thing. And then he's also going to talk about something that's going to come in the future, but it's going to look like he's talking about just one thing. It's called um, dual fulfillment, where there was a present instance that they were to understand, and then there would be a future implication that was connected to this as well. So we're going to talk about the first coming of Jesus just briefly, mainly connected to John the Baptist, and then we're going to talk about when Jesus comes a second time to the earth and the significance of that. Now you look around at our world today and you begin to see um, that the world has a lot of concern about injustice that is happening and taking place everywhere. And even Christians today have an issue with the wickedness and the destruction that seems to be coming at times upon those who know Jesus, um, the attacks upon the church and the people of God. And the world is in great distress, and as sometimes Christians are as well, over the issue of the problem of evil and the prosperity or the seeming prosperity of the wicked. And so I want to just hopefully this morning um, bring some security in our mind about how God works and what He is doing now. And to remind us of what he's going to do in the future. You walk through this life and trouble can meet you wherever it is that you go. So I'm going to put a picture up here and tell a little bit of story story with you. About, About three and a half weeks ago, Pam and I were walking in some trails off of Gray Branch Road here in McKinney. And we're walking back there and, and I try to hold her hand. Sometimes she doesn't cooperate. But I like being in the nature, walking with her. And we talk a lot as we walk. And so as we talk a lot, we don't always pay attention. So we came to this one corner, and we kind of came around the corner. 
And I kind of stepped ahead of her a little bit. But then I heard her go, oh, something like that with a woman's voice, not my voice. (laughs) And I turned back and she had stepped on this copperhead's tail. It was kind of mostly off of the path, but partly on the path. And it turned and didn't like being stepped on and struck at her and missed her, luckily. Because I would have had to suck the poison out and all that. And I didn't want to do that. You know, that would be terrible. But anyway, so, so this is the literal one that, uh, that she stepped on. And so sometimes in our life we walk and you meet things like this. But then there's sometimes that we walk in life and spiritually in a much more significant aspect of things. There are incredibly spiritual dangers that are in our life where things try to strike at us. And they are venomous because they are sinful and they are um, so destructive to a marriage, to a personal holiness and whatever the case may be. And so as we go through this life, there are all kinds of things that we face. And so sometimes we wonder, God, what are you up to? Because I, I, don't, I don't hear you as well. I don't see you as well. So what are you doing? And, and this is where Judah had gotten to. God had not given up on them. If you remember in chapter 1, verse 1, he just starts out this last letter of the Old Testament, this last prophetic voice before John the Baptist comes, and he declares to them, I love you, Judah. I love you. I care about you. I'm concerned about you. And I'm in the covenant, and I'm committed to you in the covenant. And Judah looked around going, but God, how have you loved us? We don't see your love. Not only do we not see it, we don't sense it, and we don't feel it. And so God's going to answer this question deeper into this message, and He's going to tell them today, well, here's how I'm going to answer your question to me. Am I a God of justice? I'm going to tell you that I am a God of justice because I'm going to send the forerunner of the Messiah, and I'm going to send the Messiah to you, and you will see that when they come, that I am concerned about the nations, and I am concerned also particularly about you, Israel. And so God answers this and this question that they have about whether He is concerned about wickedness in the world today. So let's begin to walk through the text, and I want to touch on just two word, one word that's mentioned twice, and I pointed it out a while ago. Were you watching? What's the word? Behold. So twice... In verse 1, the word behold is there. This word behold in the Old Testament, in the ESV, is mentioned 922 times. In every single instance, it is to call the listener and the reader to pay close attention to what's about to be said. So this is important. Every time you see the word behold, it calls us to get ready to hear Because God's about to give holy words that need to be embraced and walked through. So God twice says, behold here to Judah. Why does he need to say it twice? Well, the same reason he needs to tell you and I, I don't have the problem, I guess I just say you, that he needs to tell us things over and over again. Because we just seem to forget. They slip out of our mind. We Forget the lessons that we have learned. So twice he tells them here, Behold, behold, I'm sending a messenger, two messengers. I'm sending you the forerunner messenger. And I'm sending you the messenger of messengers, the word of God himself who will come 
to you. So Malachi is going to call them, he's going to call us to look at and consider a vision of a future day that is going to be incredibly glorious. The prophets before Malachi wrote about this incredible truth that would come to the nation of Israel that they had been waiting on since Genesis 3.15 when God promised there would be one who would come who would crush Satan. And so the centrality of Scripture for our lives is incredibly important. And it's here in Malachi 3. Malachi's name means messenger. Malachi now says a messenger is going to come to prepare the way for the Messiah. Then Malachi is going to say here that the messenger, the Messiah himself, is going to come. God has always, people, listen, God has always been clear and He's given a definitive message to His people that we are to know that God is a speaking God and He sends people to teach us and to tell us what needs to be embraced and what needs to be walked through. Can you imagine what it would be like if God didn't speak anymore? That if His Word wasn't alive, that if the Spirit wasn't prompting us at times and revealing and illuminating the truth when we read the Scripture. One of the things I love about Malachi here, it had been the practice of Israel that God had revealed Himself and they had consistently over and over said, no God, we're not going to listen. We're going to do our own thing. And now here in Malachi, they're questioning God. And guess what God's still doing? He's still reaching out and talking to them. And He's given them one last message before eventually in about 480 years from this moment, John will be out in the wilderness preaching. It's about to go silent. God's not going to send any more prophets until John comes on the scene. And yet here in the text, after so many centuries of not listening to God, God once again is speaking to them. Is that not amazing? God's loving kindness and patience with you and I in the way in which we don't listen to what He has to say to us. And so contrary to the people's accusation, God is not tolerating sin. He's not delighting in wickedness. He will thoroughly purge purge evil from His people. He will be a refiner. He will be a cleanser. And He will work in a way, watch this, same way in our lives, in a way that they don't really want Him to work, But he needs to do that kind of work. They're not going to be ready for it. But they need it. And he will begin. He always does this. Y'all listen to this statement? Say this if you're listening. God always begins the great work. Not in the lost world. He begins the great work always among his people first. Peter writes about this. Judgment begins at the household of God. And when God's people come alive, they have influence in the culture and around them. So this word behold here means pay attention to what I am saying. Listen closely. Two things that this generation and our generation need to embrace. The first one is this. We must take His word serious enough that we are willing to wait. So God's telling them, a forerunner's coming. He's not going to come for about 480 years. Now, he'll be born before that, but he will not be proclaiming until 
John is out in the wilderness before Jesus' ministry begins. And God begins to use John the Baptist in this way. So God, we are here. So they, they had to wait about 480 years. We've been waiting for the second return of Jesus for how long now? About 2,000 years now. Waiting for Christ to come back. This has always been the challenge that God's people have had to embrace. Are we willing to have the kind of faith to wait patiently for God to fulfill His purposes? Or are we going to be like this generation and Malachi, tell God that He needs to get on the business of what we want Him to get on the business about? So this generation was going to have to wait. They're going to have to continue to have faith. Secondly, will we take His Word seriously enough to know this, that we may not in our lifetime see God ultimately judge everything that we want Him to deal with strongly. But we must know that He is going to deal strongly and definitively and finally He will deal righteously with wickedness. So in our generation, it's going to continue to be around us. And so we've got to take His word serious enough to know that we may not see God do everything that we would like God to do in regard to justice. But we've got to be the kind of people that have faith enough to wait and to know that He will judge sin. See, they were saying back then, and we hear it even today, God, biblical morals do not seem to matter anymore to you because you don't immediately deal with the wicked. You seem to prosper them. And we walk in days in which the church has joined the culture in rejecting God's moral absolutes. And our God, I remind us, does not change. Neither do the biblical standards that He has set forth. So if God, listen, if God once said something was sin, in 2023, what is that thing still? It's sin. So God's immutable nature, unchanging nature, so when He speaks, that means His Word doesn't change. So when God has declared something, it remains the truth for all time. And so though the culture has, has changed, though the church has changed, God has not. And so they, Judah, and many today are like, God, deal with them. But rarely do we say, God, no, will you begin dealing with me? Will you get my heart right? so that I can walk with you in a powerful, unique way. There's a bit of aspect of this text this morning about parenting. God being the faithful father, Judah being children who live and walk in rebellion. So this picture of God as a parent with Israel, um, God had always been faithful with them in His instructions and in His discipline with them and His love for them. Children need discipline. Children need boundaries. They need them established to know where they can go, where they cannot go. For to not give kids boundaries just tells them, do whatever you want to do. Create your own boundaries. And this is where we are today, where a lack of, where just negligent parenting has really had a devastating effect in our culture today. And spiritually, it has the same kind of, of effect. But the Lord is a faithful father. He had given clear boundaries to them. He gives them to us, loving them and giving them good rules. 
But as some children do, they don't welcome the love. They decide to go their own way to their own detriment. And because if they do this, um, one of the main reasons that this happens is, is that we really like to be our own God and be in control and to be in charge of our own lives. So I want to remind us of kind of where we've been in this book, and we're going to move into the heart of the talk today. God, in in chapter 1, verse 2, says, I have loved you, but they say, well, God, how have you loved us? In chapter 1, verse 6, God says, priests, you have despised my name. The priests say back to God, God, what are you talking about? How have we despised your name? And God says, well, you you have polluted food on my altar by accepting these false sacrifices. And they're like, how in the world have we polluted you? In chapter 2, 13 and 14, they come to the altar and they bring all their tissues and they weep and they cry. God's not blessing us. We're bringing the sacrifices. We're coming and we're worshiping. We're weeping and we're groaning at your altar, God. And God says, I'm not, I'm not accepting that because it's heartless offerings and worship that you're giving. And then they say, God, why are you not accepting these? And they charge God with that. And then last week we looked at, God just says, I am tired of hearing you talk and then they God says you wearied me with all your promises and all this and then they say God how have we wearied you we have no idea what you're talking about and so God's response to this latest accusation is to say I'm going to tell you how I'm going to act and I'm going to act in a powerful way And the way that I'm going to do this is I'm going to send the forerunner. So I'm going to talk about John the Baptist for a moment. The second part of verse 1 just says, I send my messenger and he will prepare the way before me. So a messenger back in those days did this. So a king was going to come to that region of the world. They would send messengers ahead of time. They would come into a city. And they would say, the king's going to come in such and such time. So the messengers and the townspeople would go outside of the town and they would begin to clear the path. If there were rocks, trees had fallen over, whatever the case may be, they would clear out the way so that when the king came, he wouldn't ride on something bumpy. He could just come in and he could be royal and the people could see him and they could gather in a way to see the glory of the majesty of the king who has come to town. And this was the role that John the Baptist was to play. He's spoken of in Isaiah. Malachi speaks about him. Jesus had a lot to say about the uniqueness of John the Baptist. John the Baptist's father spoke about him. In Luke 1, 76, it says, And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High. For you will go before the Lord to prepare His ways and to give knowledge of salvation to His people in the forgiveness of their sins. I love what Malachi writes about John the Baptist. Three things. Let me just briefly touch on them. One, it says this. He is my messenger. John the Baptist belonged to Jesus. John wasn't his own independent man, free thinker. Now, he looked like a free thinker. He ate bugs, dressed in camel's clothes. He liked to shout, liked to be loud. 
He was probably long-winded. He was passionate. He was fiery. And he cleared the way, getting things ready for the coming of the Messiah. And Jesus says here in Malachi, He is my messenger, but John belongs to me. Secondly, he is a messenger. Again, this word Malachi means this. This word here means messenger. This is not a reference to Malachi. This is a reference to John. John's message was God is about to step into the world. You need to repent. You need to get ready. The one we've been waiting for is here, and I'm clearing the path. Come in here. Come listen. This is what he's like. This is who he is. And John preached and he got rid of the boulders. He got rid of the things and he called the people back to God. And so after, it must have been amazing to go out there. You ever, I don't know if you're like this way. I have a, I have a vivid imagination. And sometimes I wonder, I would have loved, I would, I just would like to have a dream. God, could you kind of give me a picture of what it was like to see John standing in the water, just preaching and getting the nation ready for the king of glory to come to the earth and to be among people. And so John just preached with passion and he called the people to repentance. And if you read the early parts of all the gospels, people were coming everywhere. John begins to lose his influence. There's a text that says that more people, once Jesus and the disciples were doing ministry, more people in kind of the same region where John was baptizing, we're now going to Jesus and the apostles for baptism. Then to John and his disciples came to him one day and said, hey, John, what do you think about that? Do you, do, do you know that? More people are going over there now and they're worried about John's reputation, maybe whatever, whatever they're worried about. And do you remember the famous words John speaks in John three thirty? He must what? Increase and I must what? decrease. See, John got it. John wasn't, John was okay. Watch this. This is so beautiful. John was okay losing his ministry for the glory of Jesus. He had a unique role. And so he belongs to Jesus. He is Jesus' messenger, and he is the one who prepared the way for Jesus. John cleared and got things ready in his proclamation of who he is. You see, John was a scripture man in every kind of way. He was the fulfillment of scripture. He was the messenger of scripture about who Jesus was. And he was thirdly just kind of preparing the way in his preaching for the coming of Jesus. There's an interesting dialogue between Jesus, Peter, James, and John when they're coming down from the mountain after Jesus has been transfigured up there. This is in Matthew 17. Listen to these words, beginning in verse 10. The disciples asked him, Why do the scribes say that first Elijah has to come? And Jesus said, Well, Elijah does come, and he will restore all things. But I tell you that Elijah has already come, and they did not recognize him, but they did to him whatever they pleased. And then Jesus says this, but they're also, what they did to John, they're also going to do to the Son of Man who will certainly suffer at their hands. And then the disciples understand, understood that he was speaking to them of John the Baptist. 
Matter of fact, it's interesting as well. In Matthew chapter 11, verse 7, um, Jesus himself quotes Malachi 3.1, giving affirmation to what we're studying this morning. Matthew 11.7 says, As they went their way, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. Jesus asked this question out loud, What did you go out in the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? Well, what then did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who wear soft clothing, they're in the king's houses. What then did you go out to see? A prophet, Jesus asked the question. And then Jesus answers the question, Yes, I tell you, more than a prophet. This is he of whom it is written, Behold, here's where Jesus quotes Malachi 3, 1 here. It is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way before you. Our hearts don't change until God's proclamation of truth comes and God does the work in our hearts. Romans 10, 17. Faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. And so John is getting things ready for the coming of Jesus. And in Matthew 17, 12, I read it a while ago, but I tell you, Elijah's already come and they did not recognize him, but they did to him whatever they pleased. So also the Son of Man will certainly suffer at their hands. 480 years after Malachi He writes that John the Baptist is going to come, the forerunner, and people are not going to recognize him. They're going to have 480 years to get ready for the forerunner to come. They know what he looks like. They know what he's going to say. And he's going to be preaching. He's going to get things ready. They didn't recognize him. They did to John whatever they pleased. Ended up being beheaded. And then Jesus says, and what they did to John, they're going to do the very same thing to me. There's an interesting text. All right. I have to look at the. Okay, I'm not going to do that. We'll come back to that another time. <clears throat> so, John is part of this fulfillment of God answering the question that the people had Where's the God of justice who's concerned about sin? And God says, Okay, you don't think I'm going to do that? I'm going to send this unique prophet, the last one of the Old Testament. And he's going to preach and he's going to proclaim and he's going to get things ready. He is my messenger and he's going to come and he's going to preach the forgiveness of sins and he's going to make things ready. He's going to turn children's hearts back to their fathers. He's going to have fathers' hearts turn back to their children and this great awakening is going to happen before the coming of Jesus arrives on the scene. So John is unique, and this is the first way Jesus answers this question. You'll see in John my concern about justice. You'll see it. Secondly, thirdly, outline, let's talk about the coming of Jesus. Look at the third part of verse 1. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. 
Now they have been waiting for the coming of the Messiah for thousands of years. This promise, waiting, waiting, waiting. So God answers the question first, I'm going to send a forerunner before the Messiah. Someone will be greater than him, and Jesus is greater than John. And so the text says there, the Lord in, in whom you seek will suddenly come. Now I have to ask the question, were they seeking God in Malachi's generation? No, they were not. But they liked to talk about the coming of the Messiah. They just weren't really seeking Him. And so they're kind of, kind of seeking in a sense of language. Oh, He's coming. But they weren't heart in it, all in, seeking the Messiah. And so the Lord, whom you by name and language and action kind of look like you're seeking, but I want you to know this. Here's the second answer. He's actually going to come. And when he comes, he's going to come to the temple and he's going to come in a powerful, mighty way. This word, in the Lord in whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. This word suddenly means come unexpectedly. Not soon as in time frame, calendar. But when he comes, he's just going to appear and you're really not going to be ready because it's going to be unexpected. It's going to kind of be instantaneous and he will be there among you. Abruptly, he will be there among you. So he came, again, watch this. John the Baptist was connected to the first coming of Jesus, getting things ready. But there's also a future fulfillment in this verse that he's also going to come again. And in both of his comings, he comes to the temple. First coming, he came to the temple multiple times. When he returns again on the second time, he will come to the new temple. Peter writes it like this about the second coming. Second Peter 3, verse 10. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. And then the heavens will pass away with a roar and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. So we talk about the day of the Lord is coming, His second coming, and that's what we're going to move into now, primarily talking about the second coming of Jesus. That when He comes, it will be like a thief in the night. Nobody's expecting. We go to bed at night, though we've got alarms and all the other stuff, we're not ever really ready for a thief to come in the middle of the night. And that's how it's going to be with Jesus. The world is going to continue on. Now, as a matter of fact, i got to do this. I'm going to go back. Just listen to this. i got to go back to this text that I didn't read a while ago that I should have read a while ago. All right, 24. So listen to this. But concerning that day and the hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven nor the Son, but the Father only. For as we were in the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. For, in, for as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark. And they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away. So will be the coming of the Son of Man. Then two men will be in the field. One will be taken and one left. Two women will be grinding at the mill. One will be taken and one left. Therefore, Jesus says, stay awake, for you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. 
But know this, that if the master of the house had known in part in what part of the night the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake and would not have let his house be broken into. Therefore, you also must be ready for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. Now what's going to happen here is this, and it's, it's what Malachi is alluding to here. The Lord's just going to suddenly appear and He's going to come to the temple and nobody was going to be ready for it and they were going to, to miss this reality. It was just like the days of Noah. What were the people in Noah's day doing? They were just doing normal life. They were going to homecoming dances. They were going to the grocery store. They were playing sports. They were, I don't know what sports they were doing in Noah's day, but they probably were. Put a ball out there and men can figure out and boys can figure out what to do. But they were just doing normal life. Gathering together as family. Cooking. Walking. And normal life just continued on and then all of a sudden... The rains fell. Water came up from the earth. And so it will be in the last days when Jesus comes, it will be business as usual. And he's going to come unexpected. There'll be a remnant that will be living ready, right? There's always been a remnant that will be ready. But for the majority, they will not be ready. And so the counsel here is, the Lord whom you seek, Malachi says, will come suddenly, unexpectedly, abruptly. He will come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant, this is, a, 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 this is Jesus, in whom you delight. Again, they weren't delighting, they weren't really seeking him. They weren't really delighting in him. But behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. And I want you to note just a couple of things here. He will be coming to his temple. His temple, not the Jews' temple, His temple. We now are His temple. And He will be coming for His own. Did you hear that? He is coming for His own to His temple where He resides in us. And He will come and He will rescue us. And I don't know how concerned you are about what's happening in Israel in the Middle East. Right now, I have no prophetic word. I just read to you, Jesus says, nobody knows the day, but we are to live how? Ready, ready, live ready for this. So I don't don't have any kind of insight to the war in the Middle East right now other than to say this. When these things like this happen over there, you better perk up. And we need to be reminded to be ready because Jesus, when he returns, is returning not to Washington, D.C. He's returning to Jerusalem. And so the counsel here for us is to be ready. Now for believers, guess what? This is absolutely good news. He is coming back for his own. But for those who do not know him, it is not good news at all. But this sudden coming of Jesus is good. But the question comes, are you and I ready for this? What do you need to do? What do I need to do to be ready for the coming of Jesus? 
When he came the first time, he was presented in the temple. As a boy, he stays in the temple. His parents, remember, he had such irresponsible parents. They left him in Jerusalem, and they're two days out and don't know where he is. When they find him, he's like, why, why are you looking everywhere for me? Didn't you, did, did you not know that I would be about my father's work and I would be in my father's house? You know what I find interesting? When he came to the temple the very first time, that I, th- I think personally, I think he cleansed the temple at the beginning of his ministry, and then I think he also cleansed the temple at the end of his ministry. And what's interesting about both of those cleansings, he was not violent toward any people, but he was violent, very violent, very angry at all the stuff that was happening inside. You know what was interesting to me? Is that as he cleansed the temple, I believe the first time in John chapter 2, nobody afterwards tried to arrest him. They They had three more years to arrest him. Nobody went after him. I think that was a supernatural moment where God himself was in his temple that represented the glory of who he was and he was going to do whatever he wanted to do that day. To cleanse it. And so that's a sign, watch this, it's a sign of God's judgment upon the people of God who had allowed that to happen in the temple. So when he comes, he is going to first of all begin the judgment with the people of God. In 1980, Mount St. Helens erupted. Some of us were alive. You younger people go home. There's a thing called Google and YouTube and just type type in Mount St. Helens. Geologists knew something was going to happen. A side section of the mountain had become very swollen. And the tremors were getting stronger. And so everybody who lived near the mountain were told, you've got to flee your homes. This is not safe. And when it finally blew its top, um, as is well before it finally blew its top, but as is typical of people, some of them listened to the warning and some of them did what? They just stayed. And they just lived there. Well, a news crew came to a guy named Harry Randall Truman. He had lived near the mountain for about two, for several decades, about 20 years. When the news people asked him, what are you going to do? He said the mountain had been there for centuries that it was not going to erupt, so he would stay. One morning, all of the warnings from the scientists came true when he, among with many others who stayed, were killed when the mountain erupted. You know, I find it interesting today that there's a lot of people who say, well, I'm not scared of the second coming of Jesus. They better be if they're not covered by the blood of Christ. And so that brings us to The fourth point this morning, there are two key questions that have to be asked. We finally get to verse 2, okay? Here we are. But who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. In 1988, in November... I was in South Texas on a Saturday night playing Texas A&M. It was called Texas A&I at that time. I was a quarterback. It was my senior year. 
So West Texas, the school I played for, had gone down to play Texas A&I. They had a guy who had gone to the University of Texas on a scholarship and had flunked out, and Texas A&I had recruited him. He was the left end. I was the quarterback. You don't like right ends or your guy over here because if you're a right-handed quarterback, that's blindside. Well, his name is John Randall. Um, he's now a part of the NFL Hall of Fame. He, the whole game, said, hey, 19. I was 19. That's not a um, 70s song, hey, 19, okay? I was 19. That was my number. He said, hey, 19, I'm coming. I'm coming. And he said it all game long, and he came all game long. He sacked me, I think it was seven times. He hit me so hard one time. I used to wear this thing here to protect my ribs as a quarterback. When you throw that, when you got hit, you would be protected. He hit me right between my shoulder pads and my rib protector, and I laid on the ground and rolled around. You ever lost your breath before and you're trying to find it? That was me. And he just kept saying, I'm coming, I'm coming, and I'm telling you, he did. So I want to remind you and I of this. It got, was about a, just another sidelight story because it has some spiritual implications as well. Our left tackle got ate up so much that he took himself out of the game and said, I don't want to try to block him anymore. <laughs> How well do you think I felt about that decision? <laughs> so hear this. Hey, world that mocks me and hates me, I'm coming again. And when I come, I am going to, I've loved the world. And, and for thousands of years, I've been patient for you to come to know my son. And when I come, I'm going to mete out divine retribution upon those who have rejected me. And when he comes, there's two questions that have to be asked that the text tells us to ask. Who can endure when he comes? Who can do that? And then secondly, who can stand when he comes? And there's only the only humans who can endure that day and can stand that day when King Jesus leaves the throne room of heaven back to earth are those who are in Christ, covered by the blood of Jesus. We have received his righteousness because our righteousness will not be enough. The only ones who can endure the day when Jesus comes are those with whom Christ has covered them with his wondrous work of the cross. So the first question is, who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? Psalm 130 verse 3 says, If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could Stand. And when he comes, I want you to note this. When he comes, he's going to do this, first of all, he's going to bring a purifying fire to his people. And he's going to purify them. The text tells us there that there are two types of material. When he comes, he's saying, Who can endure the day of his coming? Who can stand when he appears? For he's like a refiner's fire. And like Fuller's soap, the refiner will purify and cleanse his people, not destroy them. 
He will destroy those that aren't of his people. Here's that verse, 1 Peter 4, 17. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will begin? What will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? He's a refiner's fire. So those who are deep in sin, full of impurity, where sin is heavy, he is a refining and consuming fire that's going to burn out the impurities to make us godlier. The expertise of a refiner or a smelter is one who will continue the process until the work is finished. And he will, he's promised us, Philippians 1, 6, Becca, favorite verse of Becca's. He is faithful to complete the work that he what? That he started. And when he comes, he will, he will do this great work as a refining fire. And the smelter works with the gold and the silver until he sees his image in the silver. And he will continue this. If you are the silver, that heat sometimes is hard. It's tough. As he's turning up the heat and he's purifying our lives. This phrase, fuller's soap there. They used to, they used to take the garments back then. And they would put them on these rocks and they would put this detergent on them. It kind of had alkaline in it. And they would put it in there and people would step on them and do this. And and then then they would take them and they would rub them on these chalky rocks to make them whiter. Because back then you just didn't have, it's the only way you could get your garments light again. You remember when Jesus was transfigured, Mark tells us this that his garments became so white. And, and if you go back to the old language, it says this, whiter than any fuller with their soap could ever make them white. The glory of Christ shone forth with that. And so two key questions. Who can stand? Who can endure? Well, only those in whom God has been doing the purifying work through the work of Christ and the Holy Spirit bringing about a purity and a holiness to their lives. Spurgeon wrote this about this text. If any of you, my hearers, are seeking the Lord at this time, I want you to understand what it means. You are seeking a fire which will test you and consume much which has been dear to you. We are not to expect Christ to come and save us in our sins. He will come and save us from our sins. Therefore, if you are enabled by faith to take Christ as Savior, remember that you also take Him as purger and purifier, for it is from sin that He saves us. And when He comes back, this is the fifth thing this morning, is that the refiner will purify His own. Look at verse 3. He sits down as a refiner in a purifier of silver. And He will purify not the Gentile nations... He will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver. And then they will bring offerings and righteousness to the Lord. Malachi 3, 4. And then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord as in the days of old and as in former years. So when Christ comes in His second coming, judgment begins initially 
with the people of God as Jesus sits down and he purifies his people and he uses fuller soap to bring about a holiness and a, and a, and a, a whiteness in a sense of, of clothing, that our clothing and who we are looks holy, it looks pure. And he will sit down and he will, the text says, and he will do this work. And for his people, he will purify them. I'll say it again, but not destroy them. This word purify means to test or examine for the purpose of gaining certain pieces of information about the quality of the purity of the silver or gold. And in the text here of our faith and of our lives. And he will do this work, and it will be a powerful work that he does to bring about this. The judging would begin in this text, it says, with the leaders. And so the indication there is that when he comes back, he will begin with the leaders who are bringing the offerings to get this correct and to get this right. That judgment would begin with them, and then it would move out as Malachi speaks here about the coming and the future work of Jesus. Now, we really are winding this down. Not dope, typical winding this down. But we're winding this down. And I need you to hear this. There are two strong disciplines that God gives to his people. One's found in Hebrews 12 and another one's found in 1 Corinthians 3. And I want to talk about these just for a moment. Hebrews 12, 5 and following says this. Have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons, or in other words, as children? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord, listen to this, for the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you, when this happens, as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? And if you are left without discipline, in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. So let's bring this to a practical implication to our lives as families, parents. If we never discipline our children, according to what the scripture says there, it says that we don't love them. If we love them, we discipline, we set boundaries. We step in when they've made decisions to go outside of that. And so one of the ways that we know that God loves us, according to Hebrews 12, is that God, when we do step out of line, God comes and he brings a discipline, a a judgment, a purifying work to discipline us, to remind us what we need to do in our lives. And this discipline is to shape us. Then there's a, a second discipline that's more of a judgment that happens after this life. See, I think a lot of Christians have a misunderstanding that believers are not going to be judged. Now, we are not going to be judged for our sin, praise God, because that's covered, but we are going to be judged by our works. 
So listen to this text from the Apostle Paul. And this, for anyone who is a believer in the room today, this applies to every one of us. See, inside my life at age 17, the Holy Spirit entered, Jesus saved me. And inside my life, there was a foundation upon which I began to build my life upon. And I was constructing a house since age 17 all the way up to now, which is a lot of years. And when this life is over, whenever that is, this house that I've been building inside of me on the foundation, the solid foundation, is going to be put through a fire. Interesting, isn't that? Fire. Listen to what Paul writes. This is 1 Corinthians 3, 10 and following. According to the grace of God given to me, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation and someone else is building upon it. And then Paul counsels, he says, let each one take care how he builds upon it. For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, listen to the language here, with gold, silver, precious stones, those are good things, things that last, things that can withstand fire. So those things, and then he uses other things, listen to this language, materials that can't withstand fire. Foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw. Each one's work will become manifest. Manifest. It will be seen. It will be seen for the day, capitalized day. What day? The judgment connected to the coming of Christ. For the day will disclose it because it will be revealed by fire. And the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. And if the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. So here's the picture. So for as long as we live after our salvation, the foundation of our life is Jesus. And then we are to walk in obedience and we're building a house with good material or bad material, things that will last, and it's connected to rewards. Now, we're not doing these things for the reward, but I love the fact that God is going to what? He's going to reward. And so at this judgment of the works of believers, what we've built our life, upon, what we've constructed this house that our life is about is going to be put through this fire. And he says, listen to it again, listen to it again. This is 1 Corinthians three fourteen. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. But if anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself, because this is believers, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. That means when we get to heaven one day, we're going to be next to somebody. I'm going to be next to Matt one day, and I'm going to go, he smells a little smoky. And the reason I'm just using Matt as an example, it's that Matt gets into heaven because his faith is in Jesus, but everything that Matt did in his life was about Matt or it was about recognition and all of the work that Matt did, if it wasn't pure, 
just is burned up. He's saved as if only by the fire, Paul writes there. So it's really important for us as believers to quit doing this like Malachi's generation was. God, do something about them. Do something about them. When we ought to just take a sobering look and say, God, will you begin in my heart? And so that whatever I do is being built with the materials that will withstand the fire, that will be God-honoring. And let's face it, we've all done stuff that's going to probably works-wise that's going to be burned up. But then we've, we've also done things that's going to be purified. And there's going to be great rewards. Can you imagine what, that, what that's going to be like when Jesus says, I'm the positive side about Matt because I know Matt walks with the Lord. When God hands to Matt rewards because he treasured Christ like that. So Malachi's generation was, God, look, look, look at them. Do something about them. When God was asking them, come to me, come to me in humility and ask me to purify you, to burn out your impurities so that you can know me. And so the refiner will purify his own. And we'll deal with this more next week or two weeks, two weeks from today, because next week's the anniversary. I'm going to talk about... um, Just, well, just come next week and you'll hear what next week will be about. Verse 5, he just says this, and I'm going to deal with this again in two weeks from now. I I just want to remind us as we finish. He, our king, our king, is going to make everything right. And he's going to do it according to his time frame. And so I go back to just what I said in the very, very beginning. Are we the kind of people who will take his word serious enough to wait? To wait. And we will take his word serious serious enough to know that he will judge sin. So two closing thoughts. I think war... War, W-A-R. I kept saying that into my phone yesterday and I kept typing O-R. No, war. I guess I don't... Charity gets on to me because I don't say whales well enough. Okay, I usually say... I say wells, not whales. Okay, but anyway. Listen to this. <clears throat> I think war is terrible. But I do want to remind you that our king is coming back as a warrior. And so here, Pam said this to me yesterday when we were walking. Here, we live like this. We hold one hand up to exalt him, and with the other hand, we work. We work the gospel, and we worship him. And this is how we live. And we wait for the warrior king to come back, and when he comes back, he's going to make everything right. He will make everything right. And for us as believers, again, this morning, that's an encouraging thing that he's coming back. That is good. Let's pray.